It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, sexual assault, violence, and suicide. In the summer of 1975, 17-year-old Laurel Mitchell walked into darkness. She didn't make it to her intended destination, the now-defunct amusement park Adventureland. She never made it home to her family, her parents, brother, and younger sister Sarah. Instead, Laurel was abducted and taken from her hometown of North Webster, Indiana, in Kosciuszko County. She was driven miles away to Noble County, she was sexually assaulted and dumped in the southern branch of the Elkhart River. She died by drowning. Her murder remains unsolved. Today, we'll once again be hearing from Sarah Nisley, Laurel's younger sister. Decades after Laurel's murder, 
Sarah continues to act as an advocate for her older sister. Today, we'll be picking up where we left off in yesterday's episode. If you haven't listened to that initial installment, go back and check it out so you can follow along today. We're linked to the episode in our show notes. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is Beyond the Pillars, The Murder of Laurel Jean Mitchell, Part 2. We asked Sarah about the earliest leads in the case. For instance, whose mugshots were the police asking the family to review? I don't think they had a clue. I mean, no, nobody knew nothing. I mean, she just disappeared one night and ended up in the river the next day. You know, nobody saw anything. There was nobody to get. I mean, it was just a guess in the dark. Right. and, and- I don't know if he's... These pictures may be of people that had been, you know, sex offenders or something. I don't know. But, you know, they just said, here, look at this book and see if there's anybody you know. Anybody looks familiar? Anybody you've seen around in the area? In terms of the law enforcement officers who worked this case, Sarah remembers two detectives in particular, Ray Serge and Sidney Fish. They were both from the Indiana State Police. Remember, Laurel was likely kidnapped from Kosciuszko County and transported to and murdered in Noble County. The fact that the crime crossed county lines meant that the state police had jurisdiction. According to Sarah, the investigators mostly kept her father apprised of developments in the case. After her parents split up, that meant that she and her mother did not necessarily get every single update. The police would stop by every few years to talk about the case, though. Sarah remembers that Fish, in particular, wanted to solve the case before he retired. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. According to the South Bend Tribune, he retired in 1987 after a tenure of 26 years with the state police. He died in 1995. 
Today, Sarah is in closer contact with the current lead investigator, Kevin Smith of the Indiana State Police. Smith is actually a captain and a post commander for Area 2, which is the term designating the Indiana State Police districts of Bremen, Fort Wayne, and the Indiana Toll Road. He's taken on the Mitchell case himself, keeping the file at his desk. He grew up in Syracuse and heard about the murder as a kid through a school announcement. Smith declined to be interviewed for this program. Sarah's also done some investigating herself. She told us about one man who felt he had an extremely important tip, who tracked her down by driving up and down the street where she used to live. Sarah ended up running into him by chance. She met with the man at a Burger King and listened to his story. It concerned a confession from a convicted child molester who was known to hang around the site where Laurel was found. It certainly seemed interesting to Sarah, and the Indiana State Police are following up. But, as we know from previous cases, you need more than a credible story to solve a case. You need evidence. Years and years after the murder, that mutual friend we mentioned before told Sarah about a story she heard. She said Laurel had gone out to meet a boy to drink beer and eat pizza. But the boy had gotten inebriated and tied up and sexually assaulted Laurel. When he passed out, she attempted to escape, but fell into the water and drowned. As we'll discuss later, there was no evidence of ligature marks on Laurel's body. Sarah finds this story hard to believe, as do we. Sarah has also received numerous letters claiming to contain answers pertaining to her sister's death. One named a person allegedly involved in the crime who turned out to be just two years old in 1975. Sarah figured out that the letter writer was likely referencing the toddler's aunt. But that aunt, who allegedly had claimed to know who killed Laurel, had died by suicide. There was no way to follow up with her. That's unfortunately the nature of advocating for a murdered loved one whose case remains unsolved. You get pulled every which way by people who are likely just trying to help, but that doesn't really make up for the fact that you end up sinking so much time into traveling down dead-end roads. Sarah keeps a positive attitude, though. She told us she's happy to look into these leads. One might pan out one day. Police have themselves also chased a few leads that ended up fizzling. Sarah remembered that her father once visited the jail in Noble County with a few members of Kosciuszko County law enforcement. They went there to speak with one particular suspect. On September 30, 1984, the Bedford, Indiana Times-Mail picked up an article from the United Press International. That, in turn, followed up on a series of breaking reports from the Post and Mail of Columbia City. Basically, Kosciuszko County Sheriff Al Rovenstein and Detective Stan Holderman went to Noble County to interview a man named Gary Hall. They wanted to ask about Laurel's murder. Before we go any further, Gary Hall, as far as we know, had no relationship to Larry Hall who is a serial killer believed to have possibly committed crimes in Indiana. Larry did have a twin brother who was named Gary. But those Halls were born in 1962, so they'd have been just 13 years old in 1975. 
Gary Hall was an adult man who belonged to a group known as the Faith Assembly Church of Wilmot, Indiana. There's no nice way of saying this. They were a cult. Locally, Sarah tells us they were known as the Glory Barners as they met in a building they called the Glory Barn. They didn't believe in medical intervention. That teaching led to the deaths of dozens of members of the church. Most of those fatalities were children. Sarah had a few classmates whose families were adversely affected by this group, with its emphasis on withholding necessary medical care. Because Gary Hall and his wife refused to provide their child with medical care, their 26-day-old infant died. They were both convicted on charges of reckless homicide. But that's not why Sheriff Rovenstein, Detective Holderman, and Laurel's dad, Dick Mitchell, were interested in Hall. You see, Hall had come to the Faith Assembly at a troubled time in his life. The year was 1975. Hall was charged and convicted of three sexual offenses, including two felonies, in the area at that time. The crimes occurred between May and October of 1975. Remember, Laurel was taken in August of that year. In Allen County, an hour's drive from Kosciuszko County, in May 1975, Hall offered three girls a ride. He then coerced them sexually. In July 1975, Hall picked up an 18-year-old woman who was hitchhiking. He picked her up in North Webster, where Laurel vanished from. He took the hitchhiker to a wooded area and forced her to perform a sexual act. In September 1975, Hall was hit with a felony charge of assault and battery with the intent to commit sodomy on the Allen County case. He received a suspended sentence that required him to do psychotherapy and abstain from drinking alcohol. Sometime after that, Hall exposed himself to a 14-year-old girl in Warsaw, in Kosciuszko County. He was given a suspended sentence and charged a $132 fine. In October 1975, Hall was arrested for the attack on the 18-year-old hitchhiker. He pled guilty and got bailed out. While he was out of jail, he became involved with the Faith Assembly. He went to the Glory Barn for Bible lessons. In May 1976, he was sentenced for that crime. An expert named Rosendo Villanueva wrote a psychological report on Hall. I was under the influence of a demon before I cast him out while I was in jail, and I do not believe the demon is coming back, Hall told Villanueva. Villanueva said Hall experienced no anxiety, no guilt, and no remorse. After all, the demon had forced him to hurt those girls and women. He wasn't responsible. Suffice to say, the fact that Hall targeted girls along roadsides and offered rides to his victims makes him interesting to us. Sarah also recalled something about Hall being rumored to have worked at or around Epworth Forest in a maintenance role. But Sarah recalls that nothing came out of this lead. The United Press International reported at the time that the questioning was unproductive. Reporters asked Sheriff Rovenstein if he felt Hall was the guilty man. I have my own feelings, but no evidence, Rovenstein said. I hate to answer that question because that puts me out on a limb. We found one other reference to yet another sexual crime that interested us. On July 3, 1975, 
two men abducted and raped a 17-year-old girl. The two men were then arrested and jailed in Noble County, according to the Indianapolis News. We couldn't find any follow-up articles on this situation in newspaper.com's archive. We have obtained court documents from the case and are currently delving into those. Once we've completed our reporting, we will share our findings in a follow-up episode. Another lead that seemed to lead nowhere concerned the city of Delphi, Indiana. To be clear, this tip almost certainly had absolutely nothing to do with the 2017 murders of Abby Williams and Liberty German. This incident happened on the very night Laurel vanished. At this point, members of the community did not know anything was wrong. In the summertime, a lot of times the firemen and the guys, they would sit up in front of the fire station outside, you know, watching traffic go by, chatting. And one of the firemen was out there, and uh, this group of of course, that's where the ambulance was, too. A group of kids pulled in, and this girl was very upset, hyperventilating, and up because they saw something, but they didn't say what they saw. One of the versions of the story went that the kids were part of a singing group from Delphi, Indiana. According to Laska Randall's reporting in Ink Free News, Captain Smith ended up identifying a singing group made up of about five girls and boys. An initial tip identified them as a choir called Celebrate the Sun. And that's Celebrate the Sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N. They were allegedly from Delphi. Smith tracked them down, but later told Inc. Free News that, It is clear to me that they are not the group of young people from the Delphi area who stopped at the North Webster Fire Department that night. None of the members of Celebrate the Sun are from the Delphi area. Now, there were apparently a few iterations of this tale floating around. Sarah heard that the group of kids had been from Huntington, Indiana. The kids mentioned that, but they gave no names, no information beyond that. Huntington is about a 50-minute drive to the south from North Webster. So, if you have any information on those kids who swung by the North Webster Fire Department with a hyperventilating girl on the night of August 6, 1975, please tip it to the Indiana State Police. We'll have more information on how to get in contact with them at the end of this episode. Did any, like, suspects come up over the years? Like, anyone who was more concrete... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, At one time, I was talking with the Kosciuszko County detective, and he showed me a list of names and wanted to know if I knew any of the names, and I knew about most of them. (laughs) I said, yeah, I know this guy, and I know this guy, and this guy's dead. (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of those names I knew, but I don't think they ever panned out. And like I said, some of them are dead now. Were they Some people? of them were her age. Oh, so like cl- possible classmates or... Well, possibly. I, I mean, they weren't friends. They were from a whole other set of kids. <laughs> group. Social group. But uh, they were troublemakers. But I don't know if you're aware that that summer, seven other girls were raped in the area. That's right. A series of rapes happened in Kosciuszko County in 1975. On newspapers.com's archive, 
we only found one media reference to these harrowing incidents. On March 7, 1975, the South Bend Tribune reported that a young woman in Syracuse was watching television in her home. A man came up behind her. He put his hands over her eyes, and he told her to be quiet. Then he raped her. He wore a stocking on his head, and it was unclear how he accessed the locked house. Syracuse Town Marshal Dale Sparkland told the South Bend Tribune that the assault was the fourth rape that occurred in the area in the last several months. Remember, Syracuse is only eight miles from North Webster. That same article featured comments from North Webster Town Marshal Tony Strombeck, who said that a 15-year-old girl in North Webster had been raped under similar circumstances. She was attacked while she was at home, watching television. She actually knew Laurel, according to Sarah. Um, one of them was a girl that lived on the street behind us. as one of Laurel's friends. They broke into her house, or went into her house, and she was home alone, and she was raped. And then there were other girls in, like, Syracuse and the vicinity that were raped and never caught. But it was never really made public either. Mom or mom found out from the police or somebody. She had a list of their names at one time, but I don't know if I have that or not. Obviously, Laurel's sexual assault and murder occurred under somewhat different circumstances. She was not at home. She was walking on a dark road between her workplace and an amusement park. She was murdered. All the other women and girls survived. That being said, not all sexual predators strictly adhere to a consistent modus operandi. So this seems highly relevant to Laurel's case. As far as Laurel's death goes, she was not attacked with a weapon, seemingly. She appears to have drowned. That's despite the fact she was a good swimmer. According to Sarah, there were no indications that Laurel had been bound. Her wrists were visible at her funeral, and there were no obvious ligature marks. She was discovered in the southern branch of the Elkhart River in Noble County. According to Sarah, that's not a river with swift currents. She described it instead as a relatively lazy river. Laurel was still wearing her clothes when she was found. All those facts leave us with questions about how exactly she died. We'd be very interested in knowing what made police realize so quickly they were dealing with the murder, before Noble County Coroner Dr. John Ramsey even received a pathologist's report on her death. It's also important to note that Sarah is under the impression that her sister was put in the water basically where she was found. In media interviews with Ink Free News, Captain Smith told Laska Randalls that he believes that the killer's decision to dump Laurel there indicates local knowledge, as it's out of the way. That, in addition to Sarah's indication that many suspects on the list compiled by Kosciuszko County authorities were known to Laurel, made us wonder if she had trouble with any peers. We have a few additional questions that we'd like to get to the bottom of. It struck us that North Webster was a resort town. Visitors would come to the place where Laurel worked for religious conferences and contemplative retreats. They would splash around in the shimmering lake, where she and her siblings learned to swim as children. They'd get their thrills at the amusement park, where she was supposed to hang out with her friends on the night she vanished. Let's stop here for a moment to hear from our terrific sponsors. 
A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're very curious about what events Epworth Forest had going on back in August of 1975. We scoured newspapers.com for relevant information. We also looked through online copies of the Hoosier United Methodist, a monthly newspaper from the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church. Specifically, we took the liberty of reviewing all the available 1975 issues of the Hoosier United Methodist, courtesy of DePaul University's archives. We were looking for events at Epworth Forest. We weren't able to find anything definitively going on at the time of Laurel's abduction and murder. Oddly enough, there were only 11 issues on DePaul's site. The only one missing? August 1975. I got really curious about that. For a few minutes, I actually wondered if I'd stumbled onto some kind of cover-up. Did the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church yank that issue for some reason relating to this case? Then we look back at the newspaper issues for 1973 and 1974. We found that the paper always skipped August. There wasn't anything sinister going on. We include this bit about our reporting process to make a point that we feel is quite important. When you're true crime obsessed like we are, 
it's very easy to jump into conspiratorial conclusions. We get lots of emails from folks, smart and thoughtful people, who indicate that they believe that malicious goings-on are behind certain events in different cases we cover. But the vast majority of the time, there are innocuous and rather boring explanations for things that seem odd on the surface. We try to always catch ourselves and check and double-check our work before we fall too deep down the conspiratorial rabbit hole. It's important for journalists to remain skeptical and perhaps a bit jaded, but tipping into outright paranoia is not the answer either. We did manage to piece together some events that were going on there immediately before and after August 6th, which is when Laurel was abducted. We're certainly not necessarily suggesting that attendees at these events had anything to do with the crime, but they might have seen something, something that was odd but meaningless at the time. Creepy men hanging around, lurking in cars, trying to pick up young women. Men who disappeared in the night and returned the next morning, acting strangely. The Hoosier United Methodist ran a schedule for an unnamed bishop, noting that he was slated to preach at Epworth Forest on August 3rd, 1975. On June 30th, 1975, Dr. Alfred Adivian of the Christian Theological Seminary moved into the Epworth Forest campground with a drama troupe consisting of seminary students, college students, high school students, and five additional apprentices. They started performing the musical Godspell and other selections in July. They also ran daytime religious workshops. The article by Isabel Boyer, which first ran the Indianapolis Star, mentioned that audiences consisted of campers from five different district youth camps, as well as summer people who regularly spend their summers around the lake. These performances seemed to last into July. Boyer reported that retreats at Epworth Forest were held year-round. From August 11th to the 13th, there was a family camp for deaf people run by Grace Nunnery Decatur, the coordinator of deaf ministry for the North Indiana Conference. Subsequently, there would be a summer camp for school-aged deaf children running from August 13th to August 19th. Those events received a write-up in the July 1975 issue of the Hoosier United Methodist. From August 13th to the 20th, the Epworth Forest Choir School ran a program for young Hoosier singers. This was a big deal and drew choirs from all over the state. We know this because it got written up in a number of newspapers, along with the Hoosier United Methodist. Reverend Herbert Wingard, pastor of Elwood Grace Trinity, ran a camp for senior high school students about Christianity securing political power from August 17th to August 23rd. Reverend Ernest E. Losh of Epworth Forest gave Sunday services at the Epworth Forest Auditorium at 10.30 a.m., from June 15th to August 31st. The Reverend George T. Wang, a minister who served the Methodist Church in Malaysia and Singapore, lived with his wife and two children at the campgrounds from June 1st until August, as he gave a series of speeches. But we don't think those were the only events going on in August of 1975. We'd love to know more about the various events and happenings that month. We'd love to know if anyone saw anything that seemed off. So what other factors could potentially help solve Laurel's murder? Well, Sarah, for one, feels that talking about the case helps. She's also keen to get national attention on the case. A pair of filmmakers interviewed her and Captain Smith for a documentary project a while back. The documentary team tried hard, but they weren't able to sell the project. That can happen to unsolved older cases. 
we know from experience that such cases often get shunted because of the narrative and economic demands of television programs. Most media entities want a pat ending, a final answer. When there's no bad guy to unmask or punish at the end of the story, that can drive away interest. The deeply unfortunate thing is that these older cases are the ones that most need widespread public attention. I know that Laurel was sexually assaulted. Um, Is there any hope of usable DNA being a, a factor in solving this case? What I can tell you is they have all her clothes, and they are at Fort Wayne at, at the lab, mm-hmm. the crime lab. And anytime any new technology comes up, they test it. That's hopeful, so, yeah. That is hopeful. Um, I think in the last Ink Free article, last I wrote about new technology, Kevin told us that they can now get DNA from hair. It doesn't have to have a bulb. Yes. They can get it from the hair shaft. So they were going to go look for hair. I guess in terms of how people listening can help, how how can people possibly, do you feel like this case will possibly be solved by just people talking and kind of sharing their stories? Or, I mean, I guess raising awareness yeah. about the case? That that's my hope for doing this is to get it past local media, get it, you know, a further, a bigger audience because people have moved since 1970. Even people that we don't know about that may have seen something have moved away or big element is they might be dead by now, but maybe somebody did a deathbed confession. You know, it's time to talk. And if we can maybe jog a memory from somebody that's not been in the area to to get these periodic updates, we need them to come forward. Even if you think it's stupid, you think it's nothing, it could be the one thing we need. That's, that's what I want. I just want people to be aware, think, and if it's something that seemed a little off, say something. You're not going to get in trouble if it's not right. It just could be the one little piece we need. And then I could get some answers, maybe. That, yeah, it's it's probably going to come down to a confession. But, and, you know, if you need to confess, please do. I, I'm not, I'm at this point in my life, the day it happened, I would have wanted to fry you in an electric chair. And I wanted to throw the switch. Today, I don't really care. I don't even care if you go to jail. I just want a why. I want to know why. That's it. Why did you have to kill her? I mean, all the other girls that were raped were not really harmed physically. I'm sure they suffered mentally. But physically, they weren't that harmed. But why did she end up dead? What were those circumstances? Was that an accident? No, she hit her head or something. Uh, accidentally suffocate her? I don't know. But I would just like some answers before I die. Please, let's help Sarah and her brother get answers about what happened to Laurel 
If you know people from that part of Indiana who were there in 1975, or who might know people who were there then, talk to them about this case. If you have information about the circumstances of Laurel's case, contact the Indiana State Police. If you were in God's Children, or Celebrate the Sun, or knew Laurel, or you were with those Delphi or Huntington kids who drove up to the North Webster Fire Department, please get in touch. If you were at Epworth Forest that summer and you saw something weird, get in touch. If you know of somebody who was acting suspiciously back then, or who changed significantly after August 1975, or who made cryptic statements in the years since, get in touch. Your voice could be what finally helps Laurel's family get justice. If you have relevant information that you haven't brought to the police yet, then call the Indiana State Police post in Fort Wayne at 260-432-8661. If you'd like to share your story with us, email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. We protect our sources. We also want to give a hat tip to the local reporters and outlets that have done a lot of recent and past coverage on Laurel's case. Sarah praised Kristen Bean of WSBT-TV22, which is a CBS affiliate in South Bend, saying that her coverage of the case renewed interest. She also lauded reporting done by Lasco Randalls of Ink Free News, which is an online news site dedicated to North Central Indiana, specifically Kosciuszko County. We cited her reporting on the case throughout the episode. We also relied on reporting from the numerous newspaper sources that we cited throughout the episode. We appreciate the insight from Greg Steff. We also appreciate the research help from Lindsay Sieber of the Noble County Court System and Alicia Dunham of PayGov.us. Thanks to Tara Evans for recommending we look into Laurel's case. We also want to give our sincere thanks to Sarah for sharing her sister's story. We know it is not easy to talk about such a horrible and traumatic topic, and we want to say that we greatly admire her dedication to advocating for Laurel. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.